I don't think actually opera has any problem about being relevant um, because I think that urge to tell stories through music will continue to produce relevant and exciting repertoire. Henry James says the only, said the only thing you can ask of any artist or any work of art is that it interests you. Does it keep one awake? Do you want to see what's going to happen next? When WNO commissioned a song for the future, they did so expecting fresh, thought-provoking work. They didn't anticipate a global pandemic halfway through its development. But the story of a refugee called Zana and its themes of isolation and belonging took on added relevance as lockdowns kicked in everywhere. Not only that, COVID-19 became a real challenge to how this work could be made. The original idea of doing it live went out the window and the process of collaboration between the professionals and their six co-writers had to change. Composer Boff Wally explains. I think one of the one of the stories of 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 this opera, in fact, is is the story of how it ended up being what it is. It started out as as a performance, and had to kind of change course halfway through, and and kind of steering that kind of change of course with online, with Zoom meetings, with participants in different cities. The co-writers are people seeking sanctuary in Wales. It's another WNO collaboration with Oasis, an organisation which helps refugees and asylum seekers. Their stories, feelings and experiences helped create the narrative. In some cases, their musical expertise was brought in too. That's a single from Rolando Ruiz. He and his friend Tony Cordoba are well known on the indie music scene in Nicaragua, from where they've recently fled. As co-writers, they developed a way of exchanging ideas of all kinds with Boff Wally, whose background is in pop, folk and punk. We're, meeting, we're having almost weekly meetings uh, to see how we were doing at home and what kind of feelings we had about about the pandemic and if we could uh, share those ideas to see if we could do something to tell our stories to the future generations. I uh, wanted to have something more pure, cultural. So that's why he, he didn't ask about uh, any kind of rhythms or, or type of music. Yeah, so he just mentioned that he wanted it to be more acoustic. That's all. Or more organic, right? That's what that's what he said. So we just tried with the with the acoustic guitars and the bass I have here, and maybe some pianos and and other arrangements, but mm -hmm. just to have like an idea of what we wanted to deliver to to mm -hmm. both. Yeah, we were in our in our spare time. We would record the uh, the tracks and we would send them to them to him, 
And then he would just say, oh yeah, brilliant, thanks. Can you send me some other ideas? And then we would share him more ideas along the way. What what uh, Tony and Rolando uh, brought was was really easy to work with because they were in a band and they were in a kind of, you know, a rock band. So their their kind of musicality was based right in the in the place that I knew really really well. So the, so it was dead easy working with their stuff. What I what I tended to do was, um, uh, Rolando was playing bass. So the kind of the first thing we decided was let's let's get rid of the the electricity and let's make it all acoustic. It just seemed more fitting with everything that we were doing. So, so the bass lines, two or three of the bass lines were translated to, into cello lines, um, which they really loved. They really liked the fact that their music, which was which kind of, they'd got used to this way of playing, and then suddenly it was given a completely different context. And I think they really really enjoyed watching that happen. amazing because uh, it's something that, that you can you you can realize that is your harmony yeah you, <laughs> because it, it's really good it's, it was really like good. our ideas put it in um, in the frame of uh, an orchestra and yeah. opera the fight for freedom is a flapping of a bird whose flapping gains it nothing and yet it cannot stop Tony and Rolando weren't the only ones who provided musical input. This music was provided by Diaco, and he's the one playing this ancient Persian instrument called a ney. Song for the Future was delivered as a 50-minute long film, rather than a live staging. Directed by Sarah Woods, she also worked closely with the writers to create story and words. They were hugely generous, um, as were all the participants with music, um, but also with, um, with writing. And I worked very closely with them, and particularly with Tony, um, on pieces of, of his writing. And obviously we're working across language as well, um, English, is not uh, their first language and so it was a really interesting way of um, as you said an iterative process of passing backwards and forwards these ideas and really trying to find a way to come close enough to that we could really understand each other really understand and find the words to express the things that we're trying to say and it for me was a really beautiful experience um, at a time when you know we were all on our own a lot um, to really work in depth and to find um, to come um, very close and find the exact words um, to to be able then to to give back to to Boff for him to work on with the music. So it, it's a ver been a very connected process and connecting process.
The opera's underlying themes of being an outsider, the importance of empathy and connection, were current enough before the pandemic, but they loomed even larger as the production progressed under conditions of enforced separation. For Sarah Woods, opera has a duty to reflect what's going on in the world if it's to appeal to contemporary audiences. I really like that uh, it's, you know, in, in Hamlet, the idea of art holding a mirror up to society. And I think, you know, the best of opera through time has done that. You know, a piece like Fidelio is hugely relevant to us now. But there are also new stories to tell. There are, there are you know, there are mirrors now showing us things that we really need to look at closely. And and so my belief, you know, I've worked a lot with Birmingham Opera, who've been doing a lot of this sort of work over the last 20 years. I think opera has a, a really important part to play in that. The season is changing And through the winter sky The world it is changing As we gather And we fly Boff Wally, who's new to opera, the appeal of it, like in many art forms, is all down to how you do it. I absolutely love the challenge. I think when, when Sarah first came, first asked two or three years ago about doing something with, with opera, I was obviously daunted by the fact that the opera that I'd seen, which is mainly kind of opera north, you know, down at Leeds Grand, which is which is grand and magnificent and huge and it was how do we translate that idea into something um, kind of small and personal and very up close in the way that I think a lot of say folk music is and and the answer to me was was that this is about stories and it's just about if you can find the hook in the words and find the hook in the music then then you use that to tell the story and that that's true of any any genre this is new music, new stories, and a new, more collaborative way of telling them. Proof then that opera is still able to adapt to modern life? But with its innovative way of working, new kinds of material, and the fact that it's a film, not a staging, is this still opera? Yes, we, we call it opera. Yes. You know, we need to be yeah. redefining art all the time. We need to be be remaking it. That's it's a it's it's about being creative. So yeah, you should be able to be creative with opera as you can with every art form. So yeah, we're very proud to announce our new opera. A Song for the Future is the latest in a long line of new commissions from WNO. Here's another. In parenthesis was based on the First World War poetry of David Jones. Music was by Ian Bell. It's a highly regarded piece, but what is the secret of lasting success for a new opera? A question I put to Rupert Christiansen, former opera critic of the Daily Telegraph. What you're saying then, Rupert, is that it's not about the events portrayed or contemporary issues necessarily. It's all about what? 
imagination, musical invention, a certain sort of commitment, luck, all sorts of magical, magical things. I mean, everything can look wonderful on paper and it falls as flat as a, as a pancake. The omens looked so good for Ian Bell's opera, Jack the Ripper. It had a fantastic cast, a very, very dramatic uh, subject. Uh, it was going to be premiered at the ENO. It had a very lively uh, director and um, Ian Bell had done a very successful uh, opera for WNO um, in parenthesis and it just didn't, I don't know, from the first second it just fell completely flat. There was nothing there. Operatic history is littered with the corpses of new works that sank without trace following their premiere. Sir David Poutney, former artistic director of WNO, has either commissioned, produced or written a few himself. So what does he think? I don't think there is any recipe um, for, for deciding what's, what's going to be a successful opera and what, what isn't. There, there's, no, there's no easy set of rules. I mean, there are some rules for librettists, I think, um, concision being number one. Um, so no more three or four hour long evenings then when it comes to new opera. Well, and, and in any case, you know, every, every page of a libretto takes at least four times longer when it's set to music. So I think, you know, I have a sort of rule of thumb, really, that if, if a libretto is more than 40 pages of A4, um, it's too long. Um, I mean, it's a stupid rule, of course, but, you know, it gives you some idea. Um, yes, and, and I think... I think having a very clear idea about what the role of music is in the piece you're creating. And I think when you mention in parentheses that, for example, may be a key factor... Um, in that there was no way anybody could really match the visual experience that we have, because we have all this footage of the First World War. So actually making a musical event out of it was a very powerful way of dealing with that subject, because... Because the, 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 the enormity of it and the grotesqueness and, and, and the cruelty of it was something that you couldn't face in reality. So you could face it by coming into it via the music. And so the music enabled us to express something that was expressed um, uh, in, in the libretto. Coming into that subject via the music um, enabled enabled the piece to express what David Jones had distilled in a lifetime of reflection on, on the enormity of what he'd experienced as a soldier in the First World War. And then we transformed it, you know, 50 years later into an opera. Um, and, and so that, 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 I think, helped that material to come to life. So, that, so what I'm trying to say is making that an opera really served a function Sir David believes we've been living through a golden age of new work in recent decades. 
I mean, we've experienced up to this COVID disaster. Actually, I would say two, a kind of twin-pronged advance by contemporary opera in Britain. I mean, we've had the immense good luck, uh, if you like, perhaps it isn't luck, perhaps it's something more serious than that, to have two major composers producing large-scale new operas which have had international success in a way that's hardly been seen since before the Second World War. And I'm talking about George Benjamin, of course, with Written on Skin, and Thomas Addis with his two pieces. Um, I mean, particularly Written on Skin. It's a very, very interesting case. Um, it's, uh, I don't think any piece has gone round the world as a new opera like that piece has since Richard Strauss and people like that in the 1930s. And one of the interesting things about it is, I mean, George Benjamin is a, is a really an amazingly good composer. Um, but he's actually not interested in being modern at all. He's just interested in being a really good composer. <laughs> uh, and if you look at the, 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 the content of Written on Skin, um, this drama could easily have been the subject of an opera in the 1930s. And listening to his music, I very often had the feeling that quite a lot of his music could also have been written in the 1930s. Um, so what am I trying to say? I'm saying that, that, you know, that there has been this blight of modernism, if you like, that existed for sort of almost half a century since the Second World War, um, where people like Boulez, for example, more or less said that if you were not striving to be modern, you should be put in the bin. And lots of, lots of wonderful musicians and composers were put in the bin um, because they were not deemed to be contemporary or modern. Then along came Philip Glass, who reminded us that the C major chord is a thing of beauty and can be listened to over and over again. You know, performed a really, really essential and important function. Um, and now we've gone past all that, and actually nobody has to try to be modern anymore. Lena Langer didn't try to be modern in, in Figaro Gets a Divorce. She just tried to write a, a really good piece with... with beautifully uh, characterised personalities and, and, and a very appropriate and exciting music. Um, so this obsession with being modern is actually a very old-fashioned obsession. And thank God it's, it's gone its way. by talking about these two sort of great figures at the Covent Garden level, if you like, writing operas for main stages. And then there has been a huge explosion of below-the-parapet experiment in garages and back rooms and so on, where people have been creating all kinds of operatic content um, 
at a very primitive level, perhaps, or a very sophisticated level, but below the parapet of sort of grand opera, um, and very often without much financial resource, and the, the opposite to most people's perception of what opera is, that it's always grand and expensive and so on. Absolutely not. There's a massive operatic activity, people matching music and drama and, and so on, in experimental ways on a very small scale, or there is, for example, the, the huge explosion of, of contemporary American opera. Enormous amount of it being, being written. And, and uh, I know Opera America, which is the sort of official body, um, produced these statistics to show that apart from the top ten titles, you know, Carmen, Aida, The Marriage of Figaro, The Magic Flute, so of those blockbuster titles... The next best-selling category of opera in the United States are contemporary American operas. So what you're saying then is it, it isn't enough actually uh, to be motivated to um, hold up a mirror to society if, if you're not going to do any of the rest of it. One of the things that the Americans demonstrate is that when you hold the mirror up to society, make sure society can actually understand what you're saying. You know, there was a, a, a long history, and, and I think still in, in, um, still in Germany to some extent, for example, there is a kind of academic tradition of modern music, which, which is almost repulsed by the idea that the audience might actually understand the music that you write. But then, I have to say, you come across somebody who is rather, to my mind, in the, in the, in the George Benjamin uh, camp, uh, Jörg Widmann, for example, um, who writes these amazing scores which are full of sometimes wildly, extravagantly difficult music and sometimes you know, a superb use of the banal, if you like, of using kind of marches and very understandable um, musical elements. Again, somebody who clearly has passed beyond the boundary of concerning himself whatsoever with whether this is modern or not modern or whatever. He just wants to say stuff. And he says it in, in the way that he finds communicative and, and, and audiences can, can latch on to. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's, that's the essential thing. And don't be late with your payments. And don't be late with your We're coming to the end of my three-part survey of how opera, old and new, responds to the time it finds itself in. I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot. Not least, that this is such an adaptable, malleable and downright unpredictable art form. But what of its future? Unpredictable, of course. But I thought I'd leave the last words on this to some of my guests. What does Rupert Christensen think? audiences, when they come back, will expect from opera? Well, first of all, they want to be entertained. Secondly, I think they want to be surprised. Uh, I don't think they want to be shocked. Henry James says the only, said the only thing you can ask of any artist or any work of art is that it interests you. 
you know, does it keep what does it keep one awake? Do you want to see what's going to happen next? I I'd like to see a return, and, and maybe we'll get it now post pandemic to um to bare stage sort of Peter Brook productions where all the work is done by the singers and very, very little of the work is done by scenery, scenic you concepts. Like yes. Now, I think it's the time now for that. For economic reasons more than anything. Well, I think it would, it would be bracing. It would be cheaper, but it would also be bracing. And maybe if, if you like to get back to where this conversation started, it would be relevant to the times. I don't think actually opera has any problem about being relevant um, because I think that urge to tell stories through music will continue to produce relevant and exciting repertoire. To what extent the institutions are important, essential, will survive, that's, that's another matter. And I'm not even sure it's that important. Um, you know, I think we may be struggling to preserve 19th century style institutions um, when actually we should maybe focus more on the content. I mean, in other words, if, if for, for an institution to survive, it has to say, as many institutions have and are saying, oh, the only thing we can possibly do is La Traviata and Magic Flute and Carmen. You know, if that's the way those institutions go, then actually it would be better if they collapsed because they're just in the way. They're just regurgitating stale repertoire with stale thinking and, and, and a lack of artistic ambition and a lack of courage. And, you know, one of the things that opera should tell us is, is that, you know, art requires courage, it requires ambition, it, re it requires daring. It, it doesn't require comfort. And if all you want to do is to sit in your comfort zone and, and reproduce um, ra rather meaningless regurgitations of established repertoire, then I think it's better if those places did go out of business and we, we, you know, we, we stayed with the people in their garages making stuff that's, that's new and fresh. So be bold or please go away, I think, is, is, the, is the answer.